do you know who I can't stand? The person or the people that I can't stand, it's not really a person, but anybody who, and if you have kids, you're going to know what I'm talking about, but anybody who doesn't want to be around my kids, which I, I mean, I understand it sometimes. If you know my kids, that's legitimate. But anybody who doesn't want to be around my kids, doesn't want anything to do with my kids. Um, many months ago, there was a couple that we were inviting over to have a meal with us at our home. And word for word, I think I'm right on this. They were like, hey, we don't really like kids and we don't really want to be around your kids. So when your kids aren't around, could you invite us over then? And I say, what? And by, my kids aren't going to be not around till 2035. So we'll just reschedule. And then another time, I was in a conversation with somebody, and out of nowhere, this lady's like, yeah, I've never seen your son ever happy. Like, he's just always in a bad mood. And, like, it's a small thing, but if you have kids, there's, like, this thing where I'm trying to be chill. I'm a grown man. Just, like, let it go. But it's rising up, and I just want to go, well, you know what? And I'm, I was this close. My kid's three, and he's going to grow out of that. And you're 40. And you, you lack self-awareness. So let, why don't we talk about you for a second? Because I'm telling you, I got stuff. You know what I mean? And, and admittedly, I've told you this before, I am over the top. Like the, that protective parent can be in all of us where my, this is so nuts, but my little five-year-old girl, like I already get jealous with little six, seven-year-old boys where I just want to stop and go, hey, player, get away from my little girl. Like stay away. And she's only five. So, but if anybody, like that thing where they don't want to be around your kids or they're not cool with your kids, like they're not cool with you. Like if you don't want to be around my kids, I don't want to be around you. But just to be really, really straight. And, and there's just this weird thing of like if you're not okay with my kids, um, you, you're just not okay with me. And, and the most like respectful thing that you could do for me or for you if you're a parent, the most honoring thing somebody could do for you um, is to honor or respect your kids, right? Because if you don't, I mean you can get me all the gift cards in the world, it depends on what gift. No, you can get me all the gift cards in the world. You could praise me, and it's just not going to matter. We're not going to be okay if you're not okay with them. And so I really just had to get that off my chest. Here's really where I want to go today. Uh, wh what was your religious experience growing up? Like, wh let me ask it more specifically. What was kind of the barometer or, or the measure of whether you really loved God? And I'm not talking about salvation. We believe that salvation is by grace through faith, that you place your faith and trust in what Jesus has done, not what you can do for Jesus. And the moment you make that transfer of trust, you're good. You, you are a child of God. Nothing is going to undo that relationship because it's based on his promises, not your performance. So this isn't that. But that thing growing up, or, or maybe it's, it's right now, like what is the measure of your love for God? What is the measure of your spiritual maturity? And here's the thing for a lot of us, even if you're not a Jesus follower, you kind of have some idea. Well, if there's a God or I'm agnostic, here's how I think he relates. But we all have some idea. And here's what I think. I think that most of us, our idea of how we measure those things are completely at odds with what Jesus actually ushered in and what Jesus actually said. And in fact, I, I would make this case, and I'll try to explain it um, in a few minutes, that our consciences are wired to measure our love for God, I think, in a way that God doesn't even measure. 
that, that our consciences are wired to where, and if you're not a Jesus follower, this is the answer to why we can ignore certain things that would seem like a big deal and still feel like we're good with God, still feel like we're cool with God, and we become so hypocritical. And we are all hypocrites, by the way, but we become so hypocritical because we've drifted away from what Jesus actually said is the measure of our love for God, the measure of our spiritual maturity and what it means to actually follow him. I'm, I'm telling you, here's my, my case, is that what Jesus ushered in in the first century and what Jesus laid out as the measure for what it means to follow Jesus, I'm telling you, 2,000 years later, we're still trying to catch up with it. And, and here's the thing. It's not that we don't know what Jesus said, because we do. Even if you're, you haven't been around the church, you know the words. It's not that we don't know what Jesus said, but we are naive to the radical application of what Jesus said. We've kind of made it metaphorical. We've lost what was a defining ethic, a defining thing in the first century that changed everything. And for a lot of us, it's not even on a radar. And here's how I know. For some of you, whether you're online or in the house, you feel great in this moment right now in terms of connection with God, what you feel about God, your spiritual maturity, all of those things. And by the time I get finished, you're going to feel very uncomfortable because this thing has kind of been lost along the way and our measure of what it means to connect with God, again, not salvation, but the health of our relationship with God, how we measure spiritual maturity, what it means to actually follow Jesus, what we measure and what Jesus introduced, I'm telling you, are still at odds. And so here's my really specific goal. I want to change that. So here's what Jesus said, and you probably know this. You've probably heard this before. Jesus was in an upper room the night before he was going to be crucified. And he's there, and in that moment, you cannot overstate the emotion. You cannot overstate the tension. You, you cannot overstate the angst that they felt in those moments. And in fact, Jesus is there. They're celebrating the ancient Passover festival, the ancient Passover commemoration of, of God leading Israel out of Egyptian captivity. And so there they are in that upper room. And Jesus' disciples didn't even want to go because they're in the heart of Jerusalem. And they know that Rome is breathing down their necks. They don't know Jesus is going to be crucified in a few hours, but they know that they're not popular, and they know that it's dangerous, and they feel like it's kind of a death wish that Jesus walked back in there, and now they're having Passover. It may not end well. And there they are at the table, and Jesus is eyeball to eyeball with every one of his guys. And they are leaning in, and Jesus has their undivided attention because they're thinking, okay, what is the way forward for us? What's next? Where do we go from here? Because everything is starting to turn and we are no longer the rock stars in Jerusalem. People want to kill us. Where do we go? And Jesus in that moment, and, and you know it, you, you've heard about it. He gets up from the table, right? He's reclining. He grabs a water basin. He takes off his robe and wraps a towel around his waist. And his robe was the sign of his rabbinical authority. And he kneels down and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And his disciples are just absolutely horrified because they're thinking, Jesus, you cannot wash our feet with those hands. Those feet, we've watched them touch a blind man and suddenly he could see. We've watched those hands direct nature and command nature and nature obeyed. Like we've watched those hands touch a leper and rather than the leper infesting him, he healed the leper. We are not going to have Jesus with those hands wash our feet. And yet Jesus proceeded to wash their feet. And then he gets up, 
And he moves around the table and he goes back to his place where he was reclining. And John's right there and the other guys are right there. And Jesus, again, he knows that he has their undivided attention. And he uses this moment, a moment that he knows is going to be replayed in history. He uses this moment and he chooses his language really, really specifically so it conveyed the weight of what he did not want them to forget. And he says this, and it's not that we haven't heard what Jesus says. He says this, a new command I give you, kanos, meaning in the Greek, remarkable, unique, absolutely other, something different than what we have ever experienced before. The Greek word literally means strange or remarkable. And he says, a new command I give you, i.e., so that you never wonder whether this is a continuation of the old. In case you ever wonder whether this is just Old Testament or Religion 101 kind of updated and amplified. So that you never ever wonder, this is about to replace everything that you've known about religion. Everything that you've known about how to connect with God. Everything that you've known about measuring spiritual maturity and how to follow God. And every generation, every generation is going to want to settle for less than this. A new command I give you, and you, you know it, love one another. And they're like, that's not new. And Jesus is like, the way I want you to apply it, how far I'm going to take this, trust me, this is new. A new command I give you, love one another, and by this, verse 35, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you, what's the word? Love one another. Jesus is going, look, guys, guys, undivided attention. Look me in the eyeball. By this, everybody's going to know, and you're going to know whether you are really my disciples, whether you are really following me, the measure of your love for me, the measure of spiritual maturity by this one thing. And then Matthew writes down his encounters with Jesus. And, and Matthew comes along and he records this one day where Jesus is there with his disciples as well as some religious leaders. Matthew writes it down. And what Matthew writes that Jesus said is terrifyingly clear. In fact, if Jesus meant what Jesus said, which most of us do not take seriously, it changes everything. And in fact, for a lot of us in this room or online or listening to this somewhere, it in this moment, as much as you know, as much as you've been around the church, maybe you've read through the Bible in a year, as much as you know, if we really embrace this, in this instant, it would change how you view following Jesus. It would change your litmus test for your spiritual maturity and whether you really love God. And it's not that we don't know what Jesus said. But we are naive to the radical application of this and that Jesus really meant what he said. And so Matthew records that one day some religious leaders come to Jesus and they just ask this question. What, Jesus, what is the greatest command? I mean, there's 613 of them. Just boil it down for us. And as you read it, their whole goal is to trap Jesus, which, like, are you serious? Like, the dumbest thing in the world, because everybody who tried to trap Jesus walked away looking like a fool. And there they are, okay, Jesus, we, we really, we kind of want to know the answer to this, but really we just want to get you in a no-win situation. What's the greatest commandment? And you probably know Jesus' words, and you can follow along in sermon resources under media in your app. But here's what Matthew records in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Boil it all down for us, verse 37. And Jesus replied, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Many of you could finish this. With all of your mind. This is the first and it's the greatest commandment. And then, verse 39, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Implication. You love you a lot, most of you. You do you well. You, you are very concerned about getting your needs met and making sure that you get what you deserve and making sure that you are taken care of and making sure that you are respected and all of the other things that we want and we need. You love you a lot. I want you to love your neighbor like that. And I want this to be the driving force, the driving ethic, the driving command. I want everything else to fall in line behind this. And if you ever wonder what it's all about, if you ever wonder what it means to follow me, if you ever wonder where you're at in terms of relationship with me, 2,000 years later, you're still going to try to catch up with this. You're going to be a little bit behind. But this is the thing. And it's so crazy because the Pharisees and religious leaders, their whole goal was to trap Jesus in this moment, as I said. And little did they know that in this moment, in this little interaction that he punctuates the night before he's going to die, Jesus was ushering in a brand new approach to God. Jesus was ushering in a brand new approach to how to relate with God. In this series called Brand New, Part 3, it kind of describes and explains the, some of the ideas behind what I'm going to talk about in a second. But basically, in this moment, Jesus ushered in, and this is so radical even for us today, Jesus ushered in a brand new way to relate with God that had nothing to do with what you do for God. That Jesus was going, I'm changing all of the game, and he was speaking to a first century audience where it was all about the temple, they went to the temple to relate with God. They went to the temple to meet with God. They made sure they attended regularly. They offered sacrifices to atone for their sin. They had pray prayers that they prayed. They believed. They studied the Torah. And that was the entire litmus test of, are you following God? Do you love God? And Jesus is like, I'm about to end that forever. That now, this vertical relationship with God is going to be determined by what happens at a horizontal level. And all of those things that you do, those are great things. In fact, those are the fuel for what I'm calling you to do. But all the prayers in the world, all the showing up at the temple and getting a pin for perfect attendance, all of your relational activity with the priest, everything that you do in this location among these four walls, that is amazing. That is great. But it's about to change. An invisible relationship with God is about to be made visible by one thing, how you love your neighbor. In fact, here's what Jesus was saying that was so radical to that first century audience, that from this point forward, the measure of your love for God is not about what happens in the temple. Your measure of your love for God is about what happens around the table. This is going to determine your relationship with me. Not salvation, but the health of your relationship. About your spiritual maturity. About what it means to actually follow me. And you're going to push back. And you're going to have issues with this. And it's going to feel watered down. But I'm telling you, this is much more difficult. It's simple to understand, but it is not easy to implement. In fact, I would make this case, and I have before. All of the things in 2018, and I'm talking to a large part of us, wherever you're listening. A lot of the things that we use to measure how am I doing with God? How am I loving God? What does it mean to follow God? That most of those things you could do if you have a disciplined type A personality and you don't even need love for God. 
You're just disciplined enough, and so you read regularly, you show up in regular attendance patterns, you pray some prayers, you do whatever kind of your deal is to feel like you're okay with God, and none of it actually springs from love for God. And Jesus is like, I'm about to make this terrifyingly clear that every time you come to me with, man, I've attended every week, and oh, I know, but do you know your neighbor? Well, I read a quiet time every single morning, like I'm in the scriptures, like it's incredible. I don't think anybody's doing what I'm doing. It's every single morning. No, I know. But have you ever set it down on your front porch and then got up and went to minister to the single mom across the street? Well, I mean, I, like, I'm pretty much like on point in terms of serving and I'm involved and there's, I could tell you the things that, no, 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 that, that's amazing. But there's a couple right down the street that you've never met before. And do they even know you care? Jesus is going, I'm changing the game. And what it means to follow Jesus is not about what happens in the temple. It is about what happens around the table. How you love your actual neighbor. And and maybe you know this from history. For the first 300 years, man, the church got this. The church took two things because they only had two things. Here's what they knew. They knew that there's a guy who actually walked out of a grave alive and they served a God of resurrection. And then all, the, all they had besides that was this one ethic and one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all they had. They didn't have any of the great theology that we know. They didn't have a completed scripture, no New Testament, scraps of the Torah that maybe they got to read. They didn't know nearly as much as you know. They just knew two things. We serve a resurrected Savior so we don't have to be afraid, and our marching orders are to love our actual neighbor. And if you know history, it began to topple the Roman Empire without drawing a sword and without assembling an army. And then around 300 AD, it started to go off the rails. And the moment it started to go off the rails was when the church got the power and they became the official religion of Rome. And just side note, any time the church gets power, the church moves backwards. And around 380, it started to go off the rails. And then the 16th century, the Reformation, which was incredible, and it brought us this amazing thing of sola scriptura, that the word of God alone... The only problem is it was placed into the hands of some people who misused and misinterpreted the scripture. And all of a sudden, what was all about around the table began to move back to what happens in the temple. And what was all about how am I doing in the horizontal relationships of my life started to move back vertical again of, God, are we good? God, are we good? God, are we cool? What do I need to do to keep things and make things right between God and me? God, are we cool? God, are we cool? God, are we cool? And the horizontal became all about the vertical. And it follows us to this day because this is our approach to relating with God. It basically centers around three questions. What do I need to do? What do I need to believe? What do I need to avoid? What do I need to do? God, what do I need to do to be okay with you, to be cool with you? And God's going, if you've placed your faith and trust in me, we're already good. I went to a cross and I died for you. That means I'm for you. I walked out of a grave alive. When you place your faith and trust in me, it doesn't mean there's not things that I've called you to follow. It just means it's not based on your performance. You've been reconciled. You've been restored. You have a relationship with God the Father that is never going to be undone. And you are going to stand one day before your heavenly Father. And you are going to be accepted and loved and seen as perfect and holy. Not because of you or what you've done but because of what Jesus has done for you. Hey, so God, we're already good. 
I don't want you to look here any longer. I want you to look here, and I want you to move away from, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to believe? What do I need to avoid? As important as all of those things are, and what you believe is important. The things God's called you to is important. What you need to do is important. Show up, read, pray, get in relationship. But it is not about you. And the essence of following Jesus is not about you. And Jesus is basically dropping the mic to go, listen, this is a self-centered form of religion that I abolished. And I'm calling you to abolish it as well. That this, this Maturity, God, my love for you, the I want to follow you, it is no longer determined by what you do here. It is determined by what you do here. And if you ever wonder where you're at in terms of the health of your relationship with God, don't look up, look around. And that'll tell you everything that you need to know. And when you start to look at the New Testament through this lens, I know some of you are uncomfortable, just hang with me. It brings everything to life. I love what Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6. I don't know if you've ever seen this verse. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through love for your neighbor. The only, hey Paul, are you sure? Because that's like watering things down. That's making it way too simplistic. You're saying all of those incredible things that we know fuels our faith, that all of those things are worthless if we don't do that. Paul, I'm not really, and Paul's like, shh, shh, shut up. I'm Paul. The only thing that counts, meaning it's all worthless unless you do this. The only thing that counts is your faith expressing itself through love. He also writes this to a church in Galatia. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this to a group of Roman Christians. And it was not good to be a Christian in Rome under Nero. But he writes this. Romans 13, 9. You shall not commit adultery. You've, you've heard that. You shall not murder you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and I absolutely love this. And whatever other command there may be, meaning, this is where we've gone off the rails, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not some template, it's not a list of rules that you take out to go, am I, am I doing all of this? That's never going to work for you because there's a bunch of stuff that's unstated. So every time you have this idea of, I wonder if this is a sin, I wonder if there's a loophole around this, I wonder if this is what he actually meant, I wonder what they say in this commentary, I wonder if I can do this and still be okay with God, I wonder if God's okay with this, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Paul's going, I'm taking away all of the excuses, this is how far God took this through Jesus. All the other commands there may be, all the other loopholes you want to find, all of the other verses that you're looking for, all of them can be summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That changes everything. You know why, you know why we serve? Do you know why we give? Well, because I, I think there's a verse about that, and it says, like, we should, I don't even know what the verse, but I know there's verses somewhere in there about serving, about giving our lives away, about being generous and not being greedy. No, Paul's like, no, that's not why. Do you know why we serve? Do you know why we give? Because when we serve and we give, it helps our neighbor, and you don't even need a verse for that. Do you, do you know why we don't gossip? Yeah, 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 yeah. Because there, I don't know a lot of scripture, but I know this one verse where it talks about no unwholesome talk should come out of your mouth and then something else that Paul said later. It, it explicitly says we shall not gossip. So No, that's not why. 
That's not why. You don't gossip because when you gossip about another individual, it undermines their integrity. It takes the legs out from under them. And you may have a little ritual where you do whatever you want and you pray and you do your Bible study and you attend something and you just kind of ignore those things. But then you come and confess it and you're cool with God and God's going, we may be cool, but she's not cool. And you can't be greedy and love your neighbor. And you can't gossip and love your neighbor. And you can't gossip and you can't be greedy and be okay with God. And it's not that he's not going to love you. But your idea of what it means to have relationship with him is not about this. It's not about the routine that you came up with. It's not about the temple. It's about what happens around the table. And so all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament is simply insight and application of this one single command. You don't even need a verse. The only thing you need to apply is not can I get away with this and is God going to be cool but what does loving my neighbor actually demand of me because that's the litmus test of how I'm loving God so whatever other command you can come up with they're just summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself and it's not so God's going to love you see that's religion it's because you love your neighbor you know how far Jesus took this? Listen to this. This is the end of that little interaction with the religious leaders where he dropped this bomb. He says this, Matthew twenty-two forty. 40. All of the law and the prophets, this is what they refer to the Old Testament as before it was known as the Old Testament. It was just the law and the prophets. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Do you know what that means? Do you understand what that means? That every time we pick up the Bible... And every time we teach, and every time we wonder what to do, and every time we wonder whether it's okay, and every time we wonder how far we can get to sin, but it's not actually a sin, every time we have a question, all of Scripture, all of Scripture is insight and application on those two commands. Love God, love your neighbor. That is terrifyingly clear. See, that'll begin, if you really press into it, to rewire your conscience to where you won't be okay with a religious game or whatever you've stacked up that makes you all right, but you do all that stuff, but you ignore what's happening horizontally. This won't let you get by with that any longer, and it's going to take you further than you want to go, and it's going to cause you to sacrifice more than you want to sacrifice, and it's going to move you to a place way outside of your comfort zone. So the moment you think, well, this is just kind of watering it down. This is just kind of making it simple. This is kind of Woodstock for Christians. Just everybody love everybody. No, no, no. No, this is going to take you. The first time I've imagined, uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> this is going to take you way beyond where you want to go. In fact, here's what Jesus is saying to all of us, is that your love for God is authenticated by your love for your neighbor. And that you cannot follow Jesus and forget your neighbor. You cannot follow Jesus and ignore your neighbor. You cannot follow Jesus and not have anything to do with your neighbor. And the question is just this, what if it's that simple? What if we've overcomplicated the whole thing? What if the temple has moved to around the table? What if the vertical is determined by the horizontal? What if it's all about that? What if that's what it means to follow Jesus? And I'm telling you, it is simple to understand, but it is not easy. 
In fact, again, it's going to cost you way more than you are ever willing or have been willing to sacrifice because this goes way outside of the bounds of the neat little package Christianity and how we relate to God. It gets real messy. It gets real uncomfortable. But when you understand this, you begin to understand that you cannot love God and ignore what is most meaningful and important to God. So here's my question. What if it's not metaphorical? Like, what if Jesus meant your actual neighbor? What if that's the determining factor of your relationship with God and your spiritual maturity? What if that was the measure of your love for God? What if it really does actually all come down to that? What does loving your neighbor look like? What does loving your neighbor demand? And here's the reality for a lot of us, we don't even know our neighbors. And again, there's, there's a wide application. It's the guy who gives you coffee. It's the barista. It's the person that you do life with on the ball field. All of those things are great. But Jesus' application, which was much more narrow than that, Jesus met your actual neighbor that you do life with. Where, where, how are we doing? For most of us, we don't really, we don't know our neighbors other than what we observe. They drive a Honda CRV. And they pull in, and he wears a man purse, and the garage door goes down. I don't know anything else. They, they drive by, and there's a minivan, and there's little stick figures on the back and across, so I'm assuming they're homeschoolers. <laughs> but I don't know. We've never met them. I'm not sure. Right? And, and then the only time we interact is we're looking at the guy down the street going, would you please mow your freaking lawn? Would you just edge it? Just edge it. It doesn't take that long. Just edge the sidewalk, please. It's getting real personal right now. But just, just edge it. I'll come over and help you. That's how I love my neighbor. It's a little self-serving, but I'll do it. And the only thing we, we think about in regard to that individual is, hey, I wonder if I should turn them into the HOA violation, right? Or we got the neighbors right beside us, and I, there, I think there's like five adults there. And this is just general. This is not my neighbors, but there's like five adults there. And I'm smelling pot coming, wafing into the, the back of my porch. So I wonder, I wonder if we should call the police. I've never thought about getting to know their names, but maybe we should call the police. Or then there's that other family. They just look kind of rough and a little bit. I mean, things are just not right there. And I, it hasn't occurred to me to actually walk down there, but I wonder if we should call CPS. Like, my only point is this. What if, what if we actually got to know them? What if that's what Jesus is talking about? Here's what statistics say that about 10% of us, and that's it, actually know the names of the people around us, like just several of our neighbors. About 3% know any meaningful information outside of what they can view just watching somebody drive by, where they know like, oh, you just moved from Boise, Idaho, or you're in the military. Only 3% know information that could be gained by, you know, a single conversation, and less than 1% according to statistics, know anything deep about our neighbors in terms of it required investment. Like, hey, what are some of their purposes in life? What are their views on God? I wonder what their career plans are. Less than 1%, meaning less than 1% of us have any real relationship with our actual neighbors. And here's what I know. We are more connected than ever before, and we are more lonely than ever before. And so what if we got to know their names and what if we got to know their stories and what if we took Jesus at face value? What if we believed that he actually meant what he said? What if we just did that? I love the example and it's been inspiring to me of Angela and Brad Parker, good friends of ours and Angela served on our staff for a while. 
And there's just an incredible couple, a military family. And so they began to take this literally of how do we be missionaries to our neighborhood? How do we take Jesus seriously? And so real quick, I want you to hear their story, and then we're going to wind this down. Check this out. Hey everybody, so we wanted to tell you about something that we do on a pretty regular basis called Sunday Family Dinner. Uh, it's not every Sunday, it's usually every other Sunday now, it used to be every Sunday. Um, and then it's not really our blood family other than our immediate family, uh, but it's pretty much we invite anybody and everybody that we know, whether it's through work, acquaintances, friends in the neighborhood, and we invite all of these people to join us every Sunday afternoon for a meal. And we do it potluck style. Uh, it's kind of a standing invite. You don't have to RSVP. You can bring a friend. Uh, it's very open-ended. I make a main course, and hopefully it's enough to feed everyone. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, everybody kind of brings something to round out the meal. And we have tons of kids running around. We have anywhere from 20 people to 60 people each time. So it's a little crazy. But it's so much fun. And you want to tell them how we got started? Yeah, so we got started about three years ago. Uh, we're a military family, and so we travel around and move about every two to three years. And so what we wanted to do was give our children the, the exposure to family, uh, to the uh, running around with cousins, uh, aunties and uncles, and just having a good time sharing life with them. Uh, but we also noticed that within our communities that we're living in, the, the sense of community wasn't there. Everybody was hiding behind their walls or behind their fences and not really getting to know one another um, at a deeper level. Uh, and so what we did was we opened our doors and uh, as Angela said, we started inviting anybody and everybody that we met. Um, and, it's a little uh, awkward a few times. Yeah, it's a little awkward <laughs> a few times. Um, know you Who for five minutes, but hey, you want to have dinner. Me? Yeah. Uh, but it was one of the best decisions that we've ever made. Um, very few rules that we have with it. The one rule is no electronics. And, you have um, to talk to each other. To talk. Um, the kids don't play games. Yeah. They, other than like electronic games, they just play Nerf guns yeah. and tag and stuff like that. Yeah. Your first time here, I get you a drink, and then after that, you're on your own, um, just like family. Uh, I'll show you where everything's at, and you get it. You have refrigerator access. Yeah. <laughs> you don't wait. We don't wait on you. Only on Sundays. <laughs> so it's it's really been amazing to see the relationships and the bonds that have formed out of this. Um, you know, we started doing this, no one knew each other, we knew no one, um, our community, no one knew anyone, I mean, anyone. they didn't hang out. And now, there's not a weekend that goes by that there's, there's not an event, uh, there's always people having impromptu, you know, fire pits and block parties, uh, everybody really, you know, hangs out with each other and loves hanging out with each other, and it's just, it's been so amazing to see how the entire culture of our neighborhood has changed because of this. So we really encourage all of you to get out there and meet a neighbor. Uh, go knock on a door, go say hello, uh, take someone cookies, invite them for coffee, invite them for a meal, pull a chair up to your table, and just that little bit of vulnerability will go a long way. Um, you know, it's a lot of work for what we do each week, and yet every minute that we've put into it, uh, we don't regret it. We, we've loved what we get out of it, which is just amazing friends, and then the opportunity to really rally around one another and support each other through wonderful times and also really hard times. So we encourage all of you, get out there, meet a neighbor, and just give it a try. You will not regret it.
So what I want to encourage you to do is just take a step. So here, here's the step, and this is only going to ramp up, so maybe you shouldn't come the rest of the weeks, but get to know, get to know some names of your neighbors this week. F- find a name or two and make some kind of connection. Rather than hide behind your garage door, like just move out. When you have an opportunity, take the opportunity, but find the names and begin to connect. And what we would love you to do, my wife and I have done this for years, is to begin to pray for those people. And on your CC app, there is um, this free app that you can download called Bless Every Home, or you can just look it up online, and you can punch in your address, and then you can, as you learn names, you can put in those names, and it's a, an incredible tool just to pray specifically for your neighbors by name. So this week, make a connection and begin to pray. As you go out today, you're going to get a little slip of paper, and we'd love for you because there is power when we do this together, that you fill out a name or some names that you already have, post it on that board, and we want to begin to pray together. And then over the the next couple weeks, here's what we're encouraging you to do, is for you to do something around the table. And it doesn't even have to physically be around the table, but whatever that looks like for you, to have a meal with somebody, to do coffee, to grill hot dogs on a grill around the pool, but make some kind of engagement. And I know you're going to have a hundred excuses. Well, I have my personality and this and that, and we're so, I get it. So we'll deal with those later. But you begin to pray about and move in the direction of, we're going to take this idea of relationship with God being about the temple, and we're going to move it around the table, and we're going to take Jesus seriously. And here's what I would say, just hang out. Just hang out, but take Jesus with you. Take Jesus with you wherever you go and be sensitive to where people are at in relationship. Like I'm going to, like my wife and I do every year, we're going to invite a ton of people, a ton of neighbors to Easter at Centerpoint because we know the power that that has, but we're also going to be sensitive to people. But if they're around me long enough, they're going to know, number one, I love Italian food. So you'll hear about that at some point. And I want to talk, talk Bucks football. So you're going to hear about that. But you're also going to know that I'm a follower of Jesus because I can't leave that at home. It's just who I am. So you take it with you, but you engage in meaningful, real relationship with your neighbors. And can I just say this, and this has been some of the pushback if you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't treat anybody like a project. You treat them as somebody who is made in the image of God, not somebody who is simply a product or a candidate for conversion. And if your question is, well, how do I know? I want them to know the hope and life in Jesus, but how do I not treat them as a project? And I'll just give you this simple statement. Please do not walk away when they don't believe and obey. Please engage with people not on the basis of they're going to join my team or whether they're Republican or Democrat or gay or straight. Could we just see them as somebody who is made in the image of God and I'm going to model and at some point share Jesus, but I'm going to love you as a friend because you're made in the image of God and if you don't believe and obey, I'm not going to walk away. I'm going to engage in meaningful relationship, but also I'm going to understand that in this area, there are 60,000 unchurched, unreached, who do not know Jesus. And I personally believe that hope and life and forgiveness and eternity is found in him and him alone. And so if you're around me, you're going to know about that. And so what if it all came down to this? So what is loving my neighbor demand? What if that's it? What if that's the litmus test? What if that's the measure of your love for God? What if we throw out, and this is uncomfortable for some of you, what if we throw out everything else and it all becomes secondary to that? How am I loving my actual neighbor? Because by this, by this, all men are going to know. You're my followers and my disciples. 
And, and come on, I know it's, well, yeah, yeah, I love everyone, and I serve the marginalized, and I help the homeless on the side of the road, and I just, I lo- everyone's my neighbor. No, no, you're ex- exactly right, but come on. Your neighbor is also a hundred yards away, and he's got a face, and he's got a name, and Jesus is asking you to engage and start there, and that's much more uncomfortable, but that's what it means to love your neighbor. And can I just be honest with you? The church is still trying to catch up with this. I've never one time sat down with somebody and heard a conversation where you're talking about spiritual maturity and how are you doing in your relationship with God and are you avoiding this sin, like whatever your sin is that you struggle with. And all of the questions are around what you avoided, how is your quiet time, how's your prayer life, how you're attending church. And I have never one time heard anybody get around the table talking about how you're doing in relationship with God and start with the defining question that Jesus actually dropped, which is how are you loving your neighbor How are you loving your neighbor? All that other stuff is great. That's fuel for this. That's a means to an end. How are you loving your neighbor? Because that's the measure of how you're loving God, and that's the measure of your spiritual maturity. And the moment that you think this is watering it down, you just just need to contemplate. And I love Andy Stanley's quote around this. When, When your heavenly father asked this question, it cost him his son. When your savior asked this question, it cost him his life. This is going to take you far beyond where you intended to go, and it's going to move you to sacrifice more than you ever intended to sacrifice. And it's going to take you way outside the comfortable 2018 Western version of kind of this temple thinking of vertical relationship with God. And it's going to move you to the horizontal around the table, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to require more from you. And you're not going to appease your conscience with a couple knocks on the vending machine and a prayer here and a Bible study here. This is going to move you to actually engage engage with the people that God loves, and that's the measure of your love for him. And if you think that this is still, man, this is messing with me, and you know, it's all horizontal and not vertical, it's all about God's glory, and I would, I would agree. It is all about God's glory. So let me just end with these verses, and I say this in love. I hope for some of us online in the house, I hope these bother you. Here's what Matthew writes. And this is Jesus' words. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, there it is. It is all about bringing glory to Christ. And all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. There it is again. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people from one to another as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. In verse 33, he will put the sheep on the right and the goats on his left. And then the king, this is talking about Jesus will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And you're like, how? Like, how, how did we do that? For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. Say what? I, we don't remember that. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. What, would you, what are you talking about? I, I was a stranger, and you invited me in, as in around the table. And then verse 36, I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you look after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you? Like, when did we see Jesus? We don't remember that. We would have remembered that. When did you see, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? Jesus is going, 
basically asking this question, when have you felt the closest to God? Like, oh, I just, he's not here, but man, it's emotional, I feel him. It was that song, and like, man, I've never felt closer to God than during that song. It was that camp thing, and we threw a stick in the fire, and I was in tears, and it was so moving and emotional. It was that time we were in a Bible study, and Beth Moore was teaching, and it was, man, it was like the Holy Spirit was in the room, and I was so moved, and I, I, I've never felt closer to Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's great. But all of those things are about you. And the essence and apex of following me is not you. Those things are amazing. Those are fuel for where I want to lead you in life. But loving God is not measured by those things. And that's not what it means to really have growing relationship with him. And so he says this, verse 40, the king will reply, I tell you, whatever you did, for one of the least of these brothers of mine, your neighbor, you did for me. Oh, did, did I mention, did I mention that when you ignore my kids, that when you don't want anything to do with my kids, when you're not cool with them, you're not cool with me. And it doesn't matter how much you praise me. And it doesn't matter if you write me a song. And it doesn't matter if you give me a gift card. The most respectful and honoring thing for you to do is to do something honoring for my kids. The most respectful thing you can do for me is to respect my kids. The most loving thing that you can do for me is to love one of my kids. It's almost like whatever you do for me, it's like you're doing it unto them. It's almost like what Jesus says when he teaches us to pray. Our Father, what if it all comes down to what does loving your neighbor demand? And for some of us, and I'm talking to me too, if we place our faith and trust in Christ, nothing is un gonna undo his pursuit, his love, and his grace for us. But where we thought we were in terms of following Jesus, where we thought we were at in terms of our churches, where we thought we were at in terms of our spiritual maturity, it may be undone if we really take Jesus at face value, believing that he meant what he said. The apex and epicenter of following me and loving me is loving your neighbor. And it's that simple, but it is not easy to do. And little Little did they know, the guys that came to Jesus trying to trap him and somehow force him into the corner where he could not find his way out, little did they know that that interaction and those words would launch a movement simply around a resurrected Jesus and love your neighbor that changed the world. And I'm telling you, if we got this right, if we stopped settling for what we settle for, it would change our family, it would change our neighborhoods, and it would change our cities. And maybe if we took it seriously, I don't know, maybe God would launch a movement through us that moves way outside the bounds of religion and what you grew up with and what you and I are satisfied with. And maybe it would begin to change some things. What does this week, what does loving your actual neighbor, what does that demand of you? Would you pray with me all over the house? If you're online, would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. Lord, I pray that if we're in a place maybe this morning where we're investigating you and what it means to follow Jesus, that, 
God, you would give us maybe clarity for the first time of this is what it looks like. And it all starts with a simple declaration of trust to become a part of your family, declaring that you came and lived the perfect life we couldn't, died the death for our sin we should have died, and rose from the grave. And if we simply trust what you have done through Jesus and not what we can do for you, The scripture says we become a child of God. We become forgiven. We are given new life. And that, Lord, you would begin to lead us toward that journey. And then for a lot of us, God, in the most loving way that I can pray it, I pray you'd begin to bother us. I pray that you'd begin to rewire our consciences. I pray that you would lead us back to what you actually said that we're still trying to catch up with. And I pray that it would begin to be the ethic and the command and the driving force behind everything we do as individual Christians and everything we do as a church and behind everything that we measure, that this is what love for God looks like. God, give us wisdom to know what to do. And God, we need boldness. In Jesus' name, amen.